Please turn in your Bible then once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Actually, we're going to get out of it as soon as you turn into it, but I need you to turn into it so we can get out of it. All right? I call 1 Corinthians chapter 7 God's handbook on marriage. Actually, it really should be called God's authoritative handbook on singleness, marriage, divorce, and remarriage because it deals with all of these issues. Now, we have looked already at singleness and have started to consider Paul's rather extensive discussion on divorce and remarriage. Now, if you recall, those of you who were here, because Paul said that he was simply reiterating the teaching of Jesus Christ when it came to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It was not his uh, revelation, as it were, as an apostle, not meaning that it's less authoritative, but he's simply making the point that he is simply stating what Jesus said when he was here. That's why if we are going to discuss the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we cannot stay with the apostles' teaching only. We have to take in the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus' teaching is contained in his discourse with the Sadducees and the Pharisees who asked him a loaded question. Remember, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, remember we looked at the verses that preceded this. The scripture clearly tells us that they were testing him. Now, that doesn't mean that they were, you know, have a mark. Let me see if you pass this, if you pass that. No, this was a trapment. This was an entrapment. They were trying to put him in a position where he would um, find himself in opposition to Herod at that time, who was living in an adulterous situation, as we say. And also that he would put himself against Moses because they knew what he taught on this subject previously. And also that he would make a decision between the two leading, uh, two leading religious teachers of the day, uh, the rabbis. And so it was a trap for, that they were trying to set for him. Now, Jesus came back in answering this question, and he was very clear and very precise. In summary, what he said, although divorce is legal in one situation only, and that was for the cause of fornication, according to the King James Version, the Greek word is pornea, and I'll show you the importance of this. He said, although there's one situation where divorce is allowable under the Mosaic law, remarriage by or to a divorced person is always adultery, according to Jesus' teaching. Now this is a rather stark, absolute answer. And it caused his opposers to come back with a second question. Now let, let me say something before I go on. We are dealing with this issue because it comes up in the text that we are studying, 1 Corinthians. And we're going to deal with every subject that comes up. This sin could be any sin. By that I mean Paul could have been dealing with any sin. And simply because we're focusing on this, this does not mean that this is an unpardonable sin. Remember that? Please remember that. Every sin 
we just read it in scriptures, can be forgiven if confessed. Isn't that right? So please remember that as we go through this. Because sometimes people get very upset and uptight when we read about these things. But the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, does what? Cleanses us from all sin. Please remember that as we go through this passage, and I'll bring it up again at the end. But now, Jesus' direct answer uh, was understood by the Sadducees. They understood. In fact, they understood it so well, they had to come back and ask another question. And that's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to Matthew now, chapter 19 and verse 7. This is the Pharisees' second question, their comeback question. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? All right. Now, Jesus had just said, hey, that was not allowable except for one reason. Now, they're coming back with this question. Notice now, they attempted to bypass God's original decree and go to Moses' permission in order to make it appear as though Jesus was contradicting Moses by implying that Moses had authoritatively commanded divorce on behalf of God. But that's not the case at all. And Jesus is explaining that. Moses did not command divorce in this text. So Jesus did not allow them to get away with this kind of hypocrisy and mishandling of the word of God. Jesus did not let anybody get away in mishandling the word of God. And so he replies in verse 7, or verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. In other words, Jesus says, because of your own sinfulness, Moses allowed this to take place. Notice carefully, he didn't say because of their sinfulness, going way back to the people of Moses' day. He said because of your sinfulness. He was looking directly at the Sadducees and Pharisees of the present day. He was putting them in to the sinful state that he was talking about in Moses' day. Jesus is very pointed. He doesn't say their sinfulness, pointing back to the people of Moses' day. He said your sinfulness, applying it to the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves. Jesus didn't pull punches. He wasn't intimidated by leaders, religious leaders. If Jesus were here today, he probably would not be appointed or chosen to be a pastor of a church. You know that? Because he's too direct. He's too upfront. He doesn't let hypocrisy go unanswered. Jesus confronts it directly. I don't think anybody would want Jesus for pastor today. Notice now, Jesus gives some very important observations. First, he acknowledges that Moses had permitted or tolerated divorce, but denied that he had commanded it as a religious or a civil law for the Jewish people. This was a temporary exception to the divine mandate due to the gross sinfulness of the Jewish men of that day. 
Actually, what Moses commanded was that they write out a certificate of divorce. That's what he commanded, that they write out a certificate of the divorce when they did, in fact, divorce their wives. Again, I remind you what we said last time. Only the men could secure a divorce in that day, not the women. And they could do it for any cause at all. We talked about it. If you spoke too loudly to him, if he thought you raised your voice, he could divorce you. All he could do is put you out. There was a little ritual you had to do, other little things. One of them, you really had to turn around a couple of times and say, I divorce you and divorce you, and you put the person out the door. And they were doing that all the time. Some people said that they were dizzy because they were doing it so often. All right? No divorce. Now, Moses said, no, 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 no. Before you do this now, before you start to turn around, you got to sit down and write out a bill of divorcement. The idea is that, hey, that maybe that will take away some of the uh, pressure of the moment, you know, to get rid of the wife and so on. Maybe it'll make them rethink what they're doing. But Moses says, you have to write it. Also, to give the women something they could use again for remarriage, because remarriage was allowed in this situation. Because so many women were left destitute, and they were regarded as prostitutes, because... They want relationships with other men, but they had no divorce, and they know that they were uh, once the wife of somebody. That's the situation that Jesus met when he met the woman at the well. You remember that? This is the fifth or whatever. Same thing here. And it was rampant, and Moses wanted to do something to check the abuse of men against women. That's why he demanded the certificate of divorce. But secondly... Jesus placed the blame on the sinful state of the man of Israel, not on Moses, for the prevalence of wrongful and sinful divorce. Notice what the cause was. It says it was hardness of heart. Now, this is, a, this is a really intensive word in the original Greek. It means depth of sinfulness, depravity, primitiveness. This is really, a, these people were sinful people. They had no regard for these women that they put out. None at all. The hearts were hardened. Moses introduced a divorce certificate in an attempt to check the sad consequences of the rampant depravity and sinfulness of the men of Israel and to offer some protection of the women that they were abusing. Moses did not introduce or endorse divorce itself. He simply introduced the divorce certificate. Please remember that. That's very important. Jesus then goes back to his main concern. He did it before. He's doing it again. They ask about divorce. Jesus speaks about marriage instead. And so he comes back to give the true meaning and essence of the marriage relationship. Jesus reaffirms the indissolubility and permanency of the marriage union. Notice what he says in verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning of creation, it has not been God's way. Now, can you be more clear than that? From the beginning of creation, it is not God's way. Moses allows you to do it and introduces certificate of divorce in order to curb the abuse. But that has never been God's intention. Now, 
my, my niece sent me a, uh, a video that illustrates the permanency of marriage. I was going to ask all of you all to stand up and do this exercise, but I know you all will get mad at me for doing so. So watch it and sit down, and as it goes through the motion, you do it sitting down. Can we have that video right now, please? It illustrates some fashion the permanency of marriage. Why should a wedding ring be worn on the fourth finger? There is a beautiful and convincing explanation given by the Chinese. The thumb represents your parents. The second finger or the index finger represents your siblings. The middle finger represents yourself. The fourth finger or the ring finger represents your life partner. And the little finger represents your children. Firstly, open your palms, face to face. Bend the middle fingers and hold them together, back to back. Secondly, open and hold the remaining three fingers and the thumb, tip to tip. Now, try to separate your thumbs which representing the parents. They will open, because your parents are not destined to live with you for the rest of your lives. They will leave you sooner or later. Join your thumbs as before and separate your index fingers which representing siblings. They will also open, because your brothers and sisters will have their own families and will have to lead their own separate lives. Now join the index fingers and separate your little fingers which representing your children. They will open too, because the children will grow up, get married and settle down on their own someday. Finally, join your little fingers, and try to separate your ring fingers which representing your spouse. You will be surprised to see that you just cannot separate them, because husband and wife are meant to be together all their lives, through thick and thin. <laughs> Only the Chinese could come up with something like that. <laughs> But I thought that was a neat illustration. Uh, you do try it. Now, of course, you've got to keep your fingers close together. Don't separate them like that. Keep them together. And you just can't do it. All right? Jesus then reaffirms the indissolubility and permanency of the marriage union. Now, here are some other passages of scriptures that say the same thing. And I'm going to read them because it's important for you to see the word of God. I just don't want you to take what we say. Listen to the word of God. Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to a husband while he is living. But if a husband dies, she is released from the law concerning a husband. So then, if while a husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if a husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. First Corinthians 7, verse 10, we've looked at this before. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that's Jesus, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now from the Old Testament. There's another thing you do. You cover the altar, of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but no one has done so who has the remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking 
a godly offspring. Take heed to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is an amazing passage of scripture. Divorce is regarded as a treacherous act of the spirit, or we could say a treacherous spiritual act. Strong words here. Notice, it comes at the close of the Old Testament revelation, the book of Malachi. It begins, the revelation begins in Genesis, where God says that husband and wife become what? One flesh. It ends, the revelation, the Old Testament ends with the same truth. The marriage relationship is indissoluble. When we come to the New Testament, the book of Matthew begins with the same teaching on marriage by Jesus Christ himself. The same uniform teaching is carried throughout God's revelation in the Old and the New Testament. That's an important truth to remember. Now, Jesus introduces what I call the infamous exception clause. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. That's called the exception clause. When I started this series, I talked about the two problems dealing with interpreting this matter of divorce and remarriage. One was sin, we just dealt with that. The other is syntax. It has to do with the wording of the word of God itself. And that becomes a little complicated, but we're going to look at it nonetheless. This is a syntax factor that is the basic cause for most of the confusion concerning the basis for what I call biblical divorce. It has to do with the definition and meaning of what we have come to call the exception clause of Jesus and his straightforward rejection of divorce by his disciples. What does Jesus mean by this? What is his intention in making this statement? Now, as we begin to answer this, let me, be, let me remind you of the fact that Jesus and Paul have been extremely clear on one point. The marriage union is an indissoluble union. They are quite clear on that. There can be no doubt about that at all. That's their teaching. So, Things being so, we can arrive at this guiding principle as we study this issue. And listen to it very carefully. In view of the overall clear biblical teaching regarding the permanency and indissolubility of the marriage union, we must seriously consider the rejection of this concept on the basis of one or perhaps two seemingly unclear passages. Those passages are the one we're looking at now in Matthew 5.32, which appear to teach the opposite. In other words, if you go from the book of Genesis all through to the book of Malachi, and you go through the New Testament, you have the concept of the indissolubility of the marriage union. You have two verses which seem to teach something differently. Most people 
readily, it seems, appears all of the other teaching and just hold on to those two verses. I say that's not the way you should interpret scripture. That's the point I'm trying to make. Now, here is the reason why we have this problem. The potential for misunderstanding rests with the possible meaning of the Greek word porneia that the King James Version translates as fornication. Let me illustrate what I mean. The New Revised Standard Version translates the word porneia here, unchastity. The NIV translates it, marital unfaithfulness. The English Standard Version and the New King James Version translated sexual immorality. The Good News Translation translates it unfaithfulness. The King James Version translates it fornication. The New English Translation and the New American Standard Bible translates it immorality. The Young's Living Translation translates it whoredom. The New American Bible translated an unlawful marriage. Now, looking at these translations, you see the problem right away. Why are they using these different terms to translate the same Greek word, which is porneia? And so the problem comes with one's interpretation rather than translation. Now, we're going to be a little technical here because I want you to understand where we're going here. So this tells you that the difference has to do with the translator's view of the meaning of the word, not what it has to mean in the passage, because there's always only one meaning of the word in the passage. Now, the word itself might have other meanings outside of a passage, but once that word is used within a passage, it only has one meaning. In other words, the context determines the meaning of the word being used. So let's look at the meaning of porneia. The broad meaning of the word is all kinds of illicit sexual immorality. And I could bring you all kinds of dictionaries here, Greek dictionaries, everything else, but that's what the final is. In other words, the word itself, porneia, from which we get the word pornography today, it means all kinds of illicit sexual immorality. Now, this includes both fornication, which is premarital sexual relations. It includes adultery, which means illicit post-marriage sexual relations, as well as prostitutions, incest, bestiality. It means that word could use to describe all of those things. The point is, how do you determine what the word means in a particular context? Here's a guiding principle. The specific meaning must be determined by its use in a particular context. In other words, just because the word can mean adultery does not mean that it does mean adultery every time it is used. You understand what I'm saying? Just because it can mean adultery does not mean that it means adultery every time it is used. Because we could turn the other page and say, if it's translated fornication, then it should mean fornication every time it is used. And you can't do that. So it's the context that determines the meaning. Now, to get free of a lot of stuff, I'm going to give you seven reasons why I believe that porneia cannot refer to adultery. 
to adultery in Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.6. Why it cannot? Why I say that is because although the King James Version says except for fornication, most people translate it as adultery. Why is that? Because fornication is an illicit sexual act between unmarried people. Adultery is illicit sexual act between married people. So although the King James says fornication, if you just accept that, you cannot look at adultery as the basis for divorce. Why? Because it says fornication. It doesn't say adultery. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's a misreading. And people don't seem to think about that when it goes. Now, let me give you seven reasons very quickly. One, if adultery, and I'm going to define it for you because it seems that people use the phrases but do not define it. They use it either for adultery or fornication. You cannot do it. It has to mean one or the other in the context. If adultery, that is sex by a married person to anyone other than his or her mate, is in view, then Jesus contradicts himself, the Old Testament, and the Apostle Paul. If Jesus means what he says here, as these were how people translate it, he contradicts every Old Testament teaching, everything Paul has said about the permanency of marriage, and every, even what he said earlier, he contradicts it. Adultery was always punishable by death in the Old Testament, not freedom from marriage. Following the Old Testament, both Jesus and Paul taught that marriage was a relationship dissolvable only by death. They both taught that believers were never to initiate a divorce against their mate. So if Jesus means that here, he contradicts everything else that he said, Paul said, and the Old Testament said. Secondly, notice carefully in the text, porneia is the cause of adultery in these verses. In one instance, it releases a person from guilt, while in the other, it condemns a person for the same act in the same relationship. That just doesn't make sense. It's contradictory. You just cannot do it that way. Thirdly, the Jewish law treated fornication and adultery differently. They did not treat them in the same way. They had different penalties for these. All acts of adultery were punishable by death. But this was not true for fornication. And I give you verses here. And so they treated them differently. And you cannot treat them the same. And that's what you're doing if you take the word porneia in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5 as meaning adultery. Now, I'll leave it to you to look at those passages. Fourth, the Old Testament associates, associates consistent fornication with premarital acts and adultery with illicit post-marriage acts. In other words, the Old Testament always, always treated these two terms differently. Always. It never confuses them. Unfortunately, that's what happens in, with this translation here. And porneia is seen as fornication without further elaboration or explanation. Or even when it's seen as adultery, it causes some problems as well. Number five, the New Testament does the same thing. In other words, it keeps them separately. You, everywhere you read these terms, you will see that the terms fornication and adultery are used to refer to different acts. It's not the same thing. They use it differently. It never confuses, equates the two behaviors, or use them interchangeably, as we would have to do if we interpret adultery there in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. Number six, both terms are used together in the same context. 
Let me give you an illustration of that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and so on. Notice, fornicators and adulterers. Now, if their words meant the same thing, that would be a problem here. Why use it? You understand what I'm saying? Also in Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication. Notice the separation. They don't equate them. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And then finally, number seven. The term pornea is used specifically for an incestuous relationship in Scripture, but is never used for adultery or fornication specifically. In the New Testament, when you see this word pornea, it always refers to incestuous relationship. Not to adultery, although it could refer to that. Not to fornication, although it could do that. Here's a rule for interpreting the meaning of a word by a person who, uh, one of the writers. If you want to get a meaning of a word as used by a writer, find out how he uses the word in the same book or in the New Testament. Because usually they will mean the same thing. All right? Now, that's what we've done with the Apostle Paul. How did he use his word poneia? And there's only once, actually, Twice in the New Testament we have the word. First Corinthians 5.1. We looked at this some time ago. It is actually reported that there is immorality. See that word immorality? That's the word porneia. That the King James translates fornication. It's actually reported that there is immorality or porneia among you. And porneia of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now notice, in this verse, Paul defines the meaning of porneia. It is explained as someone having his father's wife, which is what? Incest. Paul explains the meaning. The only other time he uses the word, he explains it. He doesn't say adultery or fornication. He says incest. Now remember, Jesus and the Jews are discussing what the Mosaic law said. What the Mosaic law teaches. Here is the text in the Old Testament that they were talking about. Leviticus, let me read it. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. See, that was an allusion to incestual relationships and behaviors. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, your mother. She's your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife, your father's nakedness, the nakedness of your sister, or your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or outside. The nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son, your daughter, and so on. Now, if you look at this passage, and it's all here in Leviticus. This is what they were talking about. They talk about the mother having a illicit relationship with the mother, the stepmother, the granddaughter, the sister and half-sister, both at home or born abroad, legitimate or illegitimate, aunt on the father's side, material aunt, the wife of a father's brother's daughter-in-law, brothers and wife, a woman and a daughter, a wife's granddaughter, two sisters and the same. All of these things are mentioned. As poneia. That's the word. In fact, they go right up 
to the first cousin. Anything beyond that? Okay. Anything below that? You're in trouble. That's true. That's the teaching. By the way, I checked it out in the Bahamas. Most of this is true in the Bahamas as well. All right? As far as how what is legal now, I don't mean that they follow it, mine. But it's also in the law here as well. But now, one more. So what I'm trying to say here, Paul defines the use of that word, porneia, himself. He defines it. We don't have to guess it. We don't have to wonder. It refers to the law that was described in the book of Leviticus as porneia, incestuous relationships. Now, let's validate that, see how it is used again. You remember in Acts chapter 15, we have what we call the Jerusalem Council. And they were debating as to whether or not a person had to become a Jew in order to be a Christian. You remember that? Read your Bible. It's right there. And they came to the conclusion, hey, no, they don't have to become a Jew. All right? However, uh, in order to sort of smooth things out a little bit, James says we want to add something in any way. And this is what they said in Acts chapter 15. Let me read from verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write them that they abstain from things contained by idols and from porneia. Now notice, he is talking about things that Jewish people do. Right? So he talks about things contaminated by idols and Porneia. He is referring to the Leviticus ruling again, prohibitions. Verse 29. You abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from Porneia. All of those things what the Jewish people did. And they were all tied in with that Levitical prohibition. It says, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. The point is, whenever the word porneia is used in the New Testament, it is always used to refer to incestuous relationships. These are clear references to incestuous marriage relationships, and they all use the term porneia to describe them. However, that of course underlines the Jewish focus of these prohibitions. So here's a, what I call a summary conclusion. Porneia in Matthew 5, 9 and 19, 5 refers to incestuous marriages, not to the act of adultery, or we could say here, or fornication. There is no New Testament support for divorce in a non-incestuous marriage. However, there's another grounds of divorce under the Jewish law, economy, and they call it fornication. But it was only during the Jewish what? Betrothal period. The Jews regarded that engagement time, what we call engagement, as though the couple were married. married. In fact, they would even look at that relation not as fornication necessarily, as adultery, if the thing had been done. And let me read you where we have an illustration of that. It has to do with Mary and Joseph. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away. That word send away is divorce. To divorce her secretly. Now notice, in our terms, they were not married yet. They were only engaged. But in Jewish custom here, that engagement meant more than how we look at it today. They regarded it as a marriage situation. Jesus, therefore, possibly could be referring to either one or both of these Levitical Jewish prohibitions. But I believe he's referring to the incestuous marriage, in which case the marriage would have actually been annulled by the divorce, as it would not be a true marriage in the first instance because the one flesh principle would not be able to be completed in the case of an incestuous marriage. You cannot have a one flesh relationship with an incestuous marriage. Now, I believe that the response of the disciple confirms Jesus' teaching. They recognized the new strictness of Jesus' position. It went beyond everything their teachers had told them, Hillel and Shammai. It, it went beyond that. It went beyond what even Moses said. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Now, why did they respond in that fashion? In other words, they understood clearly that Jesus says, once you're married, you're stuck. And I used that word purposely. That's what God says, right? They're joined to his wife, stuck for life. And they recognize that that's what Jesus was saying. It's never been taught by the Jewish people, rabbis. And so they say, it's better not to marry if I can't get out. Now, men, please. Oh, women, don't say amen or anything like that on this time. <laughs> the point here, they were absolutely shocked by Jesus' position. Today, Jesus would have been called a hardliner when it comes to marriage and divorce. Because he did not permit it. That's probably what you'll call me. Because I try to stay on the side of Jesus. Now, Jesus confirms that conclusion by revealing the necessity of knowing God's will concerning marriage before you get into it. Listen carefully, young people. You older people who won't get married, married too. Listen carefully. He said to them, not all men can accept this statement. Now, some will say, amen. But only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. Now, just to be comfortable here, eunuchs of men who uh, were not married and in some cases could not have children. Well, in all cases could not have children for one reason I won't go into right now. Made that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs, let's put single people, who were made eunuchs by men. Well, I have to explain this, I guess. You see, back then... <laughs> I better explain this one. Back then, you see, uh, in harems, you know what harems were, right? Uh, in order for the king to be sure that his concubines were taken care of and not going to be fooled with, with the people who were watching over, they actually did the job to the men. And so they had no ability to, uh, to do anything like that. All right, let me just leave it like that. All right. Now, here, Jesus is saying here that it is necessary for us 
to know God's will concerning marriage or singleness. We talked about that before. Now notice what he says in verse 11. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now let me paraphrase it. And there are also singles who have made themselves singles for the sake of the kingdom of God. It means single people have decided to stay single for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's why he ends it. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Not everybody can. Jesus is saying in effect, singleness is a viable option for a person. Therefore, because of the permanency of the marriage union, be certain that God has gifted you for marriage and not for singleness. However, if a marriage situation is such that a divorce does occur because of the sinfulness of one or both of the mates, the other is to choose to remain single until reconciliation or the death of the other spouse occurs. That's what he's saying. You choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God. Yeah, you can go and get married. The law allows that. But for the sake of the kingdom of God and to show the divine purpose for marriage and the meaning of the one flesh relationship, you could choose to remain single. That's what Jesus teaches there. So, Jesus is not referring to a consummated marriage as we know it in our culture, but rather either to the betrothal period of a Jewish marriage or to the incestuous marriage as prohibited in Leviticus, which I think he's doing. That's the Jewish application of Jesus' teaching. They had asked him the interpretation of the teaching of Moses on these issues, and he answered them specifically and directly. And so, we have to conclude that the so-called exception clause in the first instance is not applicable to believers or to the marriage relationship as it is practiced today. And in the other, it's applicable only to marriage of immediate family members, in which case the divorce would not dissolve a marriage union but annul the legal ceremony. Adultery, therefore, is not a biblical basis for divorce on the part of Christians nor is there any other basis. The strict view or focus of Jesus' teaching is supported by the fact that the exception clause is not mentioned in Mark 10. And Mark 10 was written specifically to the Gentiles. The Matthew was written specifically to the Jews, and Jesus was talking about a Jewish situation. That's why it's only found in Matthew and northern Mark. Paul reiterates, here's my final Final, almost final conclusion. <laughs> Paul reiterates the teaching of Jesus, and this is it. Marriage creates a one flesh union that is only severable by death, and since a divorce certificate cannot and does not alter that fact, the process to secure a marriage certificate is not to be initiated by either spouse if you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the marriage union as instituted by God is an actual fact indissoluble. It is not merely ideally so. It is a reality. Divorce is forbidden to the obedient Christian without exception. And remarriage is allowable only after the death of one of the mates. And then only to another Christian. 
Again, as I said, these are what the Bible scholars call some of the hard sayings of Jesus Christ. And they are hard for many. How can they be consistently applied today to the Christian? How can it be done? Well, I'm asking the question, how can these principles be applied pastorally? Well, tonight we're going to try to answer some of those questions. We can answer, answer, ask questions such as, what constitutes a real marriage? Are there any legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, adultery, desertion, abuse? Does the guilt or innocence of a mate make a difference regarding divorce or remarriage? Does it make a difference if, this, if divorce or remarriage occurs before one is saved? Is legal separation biblical? Should a divorced or separated Christian become involved with somebody else? Should someone divorce a second spouse in order to be remarried to their original spouse? Is a person who has been divorced and remarried living in a state of continual adultery? Does a person who has never been married commit adultery if he or she marries a divorced person? Is divorce or remarriage greater than other sins? And why is the marriage union so sacred in the sight of God? We're going to try to address some of these. And if you could find any other questions to ask, we're going to try to relate. I say again, divorce is not, or remarriage is not the unpardon of sin. If anyone commits any kind of sin and it is confessed, God forgives. And God enables us then to go on to glorify him. And we draw upon the Holy Spirit, to allow us to obey the word of God. So those of you who are, have not been divorced or remarried, please do not be a, a person who looks at such a person as being a greater sinner than you are. They're not. You look at your own heart, you'll find that out. Right? So please, let us stop pigeonholing people according to different the sins or activities in life. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Amen? And we are all thankful and we are all... We, that's why we come to worship God for that reason. That he's taken poor sinners as we are. And cleansed us. Washed us. Regenerated us. And called us his children. Isn't that wonderful? You see, and that goes for everybody. The liar, the arrogant person, the gossiper, the, the greedy person, the one who goes after uh, materially. All of those things are sins. And there's no greater than the sin of divorce or remarriage or any other one. Amen? Please remember that. Please bow with me in a word of prayer. Take a few moments. Quiet reflection. I know there are differences of opinion on this, to say the least. But if you have the need in your own life because either you are divorced, remarried, or thinking about it, I encourage you to read and study the Bible very, very thoroughly if you really want to be obedient to the Word of God. And just don't take what I say or any other person says, but study the Word and Listen to the Spirit of God. You cannot live my conviction any more than I can live yours. We have to live 
with the understanding that we answer to God and God alone. And uh, I encourage you to do that. If you need help, the pastors here, I'm sure, we'll all be glad to help in any way we can. But I appeal to you again, please let us obey the words of Jesus Christ, that we are to love one another, even as he loves us. Father, thank you for your word. Use it, we pray, to accomplish your purpose. In fact, we thank you for that. We don't have to pray for that. You've already told us that. And we just thank you that that word, that good seed, will find good soil in the hearts of the hearers today. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.